Okie dokie. Let me get my stuff on here. Years ago, we had a guest speaker here, and I've always said over here, from the first time I came, because I played the piano, and uh, so he was sitting by me, and I came up and played the piano, and then sit down by him. Before we had special music, I introduced the special music, and uh, introduced him, and he followed the special music. And he looked over at me quizzically, he said, do you keep the nursery too? I said, no, I haven't done that yet. Would you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you would, this morning, 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, in John chapter 14, we'll look at John 14 first, and then 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 in that order. I hope you'll listen. I believe this will be an encouragement to you. I've been thinking a lot about the season of life that we're in, particularly for my own life. And this season um, has been probably, before now, the most troubled season. I don't mean the event, but a season where just uh, weeks and days came together and they just accumulated. That troubled me was during the Vietnam War. I can remember going over to my grandparents' house. And in the late 60s and the early 70s, I went over there a lot. And my grandfather, he would come home from work, and about 30 minutes later, he would have uh, dinner. And he always liked to watch the news uh, while he ate. And my grandmother would make uh, a lot of times pork chops and hominy and some other delicacies and she would make white bread with butter and, uh, and tea. And, and so we would sit there and, and we wouldn't talk while the news was on because he was very attentive to what was on during the news. And he always liked Walter Cronkite. And this is just uh, emblazed upon my mind. Those of you that are about my age or older, you, you remember this. And the same thing came on every night back then. And in the late 60s especially, uh, color television was, was, in, was really not uh, around much, uh, kind of dating myself. You guys remember when you would uh, maybe go on a trip when you were little and they had a hotel and it said color TV, remember that? Mama, they got color TV, can we stop there? And that, that was a real special thing. And so... Uh, the programs were pretty much in black and white in, in the 60s. And so in black and white, uh, in a very sober and stark black and white, the opening of every program was an update on the Vietnam War. And they would have some, some film. And again, it was grainy and gritty because they didn't have all of the quality. Uh, and I don't understand how the satellites work and all that. But it wasn't as, as pure as it is today. And so they would show some things that had happened from the day. And then a few minutes into that, they would, they would have some numbers up there. And again, the graphics weren't uh, really clean and so forth. And it said, uh, killed in action, and they would have a number. And then it would say, missing in action, and it would have a number. How many of you remember that? You do remember that, those of you that are around my age or older. That was every night. Every night. And though I was a, a, a young fella, uh, that, I don't just remember that. Uh, I, it sobered me. And I think maybe in some ways it made me grow up a little faster because it made me think about time. It made me think about death. Because I knew what those numbers meant, even at a young age. That MIA, they couldn't find those guys, and many of those guys had died. They couldn't find them yet. Some of them were captured, perhaps. And then I got into uh, 
the 70s, in the early 70s especially, the war was winding down just a little bit. And I began to realize that the draft was on and my number was coming. How many of you were in Vietnam? I know Mike was. Larry was over there. Thank you, guys. That was really difficult. Uh, these folks didn't come home to a warm welcome. It was a very divided nation. I won't go into all of that right now. That's not the purpose of the message. But that was a that was a, a real troubling time to me, even as a young person. But that was a season because it was it was years. And those statistics, even though I didn't watch television a whole lot, but when I was over at my grandparents' house, uh, I was taken by that. I knew it was coming on, and you couldn't pull your eyes away from it. And then there are events that mark generations. Um, seems like there's one or two for every one. Pearl Harbor. Um, Calvin was in the Navy back during that time. Many of those uh, folks have, have passed away. They've gone on, that generation. But you, you could mark, they know where they were and what they were doing when they found out about that. Even if you weren't in the war uh, participating, you know what was happening. And then you begin to think of other things like the Oklahoma City bombing. When uh, Timothy McVeigh and his partner participated in that and then in 1986 in January when the Challenger the space shuttle Challenger exploded of course in Huntsville um, because of our part in that but you don't even have to be from Huntsville it was during the school day I was over here next door in the children's wing that's where we had our office buildings and then the uh, space shuttle Columbia um, these are these are individual events and of course 911 that Tuesday in 2001, September the 11th. And these things, they mark us. We remember them with great uh, detail. But I'm not talking about an individual event. I'm talking about a season. And I hope you're tracking with me because this is important as I laid the foundation for the message. Where it's like a torrent. It's just, it's just day after day after day after day. And so for um, the past um, almost six months, we have um, had some, with an increased degree of, of different severity, of different issues that have worn on us. First, you had the coronavirus, and it had a whole lot of different names. There's a lot of fear from that. Uh, some of it is very, very justified. You, you watch the news and you can't watch or read too much of it because you don't know what to believe. That, that this One thing comes out one week, two weeks later, there's a different view. And then three weeks later, they go back to the original view and, and it makes you cynical. And then the limitations from that and the different rules that are put in place. The frustrations that all of us have experienced, not only from the changing information, but from the isolation. You need to stay in your house. I, I watched uh, yesterday, my daughter Ashley, as you know, lives in Texas, and how that they came out, the governor came out and said that there will be no school until November. They're going to have to go online, no in-person in school. So all of the schooling done statewide will be online until at least November. And that, that jumbles a, a lot of plans. And then during this time, especially several months ago, and I, I had friends that, uh, that had funerals. One of my friends, uh, his son, uh, he and his wife lost a little baby. And they could have 10 people at the funeral, and that counted the preacher. And I'm not criticizing the people who conducted the funeral because they're basically doing what was handed to them. And they said, well, other people can come, but they can listen from their car. And, uh, 
And I got some pictures of that, of that funeral. Some of you have been to some funerals during that time. And, and the difficulty where I want to embrace them, but I, I can't. Weddings were called off. And then some weddings they didn't call off. There were just a handful of people there. Graduations were not held. Some were postponed. Surgeries were postponed. People have died because of this. Not from the virus, but from surgeries that they couldn't get into. The, 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 the carnage from this limits, go, go, not, is not limited, but it goes far beyond what we will know. And then the impact that it's had on churches. Uh, it has had a, a definite impact where that um, pastors, uh, look, let's be honest, we, we don't know what we're doing. I mean, you think we know what we're doing, Pat. We don't know what we're doing. We've never done this before. And that's not to say you can't do church a different way. But the Bible, the very definition of the church means to gather together. Do you understand that? That's what the Greek word means. It means a gathering. Ecclesia. And so the church gathers together so they can be dispersed. Now, there are some advantages to that. I told Daniel and Tim... I guess the first two weeks when we were going through this, I said, well, fellas, I said, I guess uh, through this we'll find out how good a job we've been doing. Now, I know God builds the church. I understand that. But He uses people. I said, we'll kind of find out how well we've been doing at our task because we may not see folks for a while. And and this thing has been worldwide. I, I remember reading about small, very small villages in Africa and in remote places where shops were shut down over the entire world. And, you know, we're kind of limited here. We think about America and some other places and big cities like London. But this this was world, this is, not was, it's, it's worldwide. I'm going to talk about that more maybe next week or the week after, Lord willing. And then the virus, the, the next kind of thing was the financial damage, which we still don't know the long-term consequences of that. Our nation was already in debt. That I don't know how we'll repay. And if the Lord tarries, what we're leaving to our grandchildren. And it's weakened our status among the world. I don't mean what they think about us, but it's weakened the dollar. It's weakened... Uh, our power as a country, no matter what people say. Paul and I were uh, at a restaurant. We get some takeout about a month ago. And so uh, I know the owner pretty well. It's a, I would say it's a mom and pop place, but it, it, it's more than that. It's a staple restaurant here in town. It's been here for like 60 years. But they're not a chain. And so I asked uh, the owner, I said, how have you guys been doing? They, they, they had to shut down. And they had been open for a couple of weeks. So how have you guys been doing through this? Or Basically, my question was, are you guys going to stay open? I didn't want to ask him that. So how have you guys? He said, well, it's been a battle. He said, since we've been open, you know, not long, people have come back. And I looked because I was doing the takeout. I walked in and, and I don't go out a lot. I had my mask and all that stuff on. And I looked in, and they had the tables, just a handful of tables up. Where Aubrey works at Blue Plate, that place is deserted. And there's less than half that they, it's just, it's unbelievable. But anyhow, I asked this guy how they were doing. He said, I think we're going to be okay. Because he said, we're not part of a chain. But here's what he said. He said, but Rick, I think in November... I'm sorry, he said in September, I think a lot of restaurants are going to close. And then he went on and he talked some more. I got in the car, I I got this stuff, and I I took it out of the car. I told Paula what happened, and I said, you know, he said something about September. And I'm not a businessman, and I don't know anything about the food industry, but I, I, I don't know if it's a billing cycle or what, but I don't know why he mentioned September. 
And uh, many restaurants are closed. All the businesses, the loss of jobs. And then the third thing, these things keep compounding, is a division of our country. On the surface, uh, the press and others would call it racism. But everything always has deeper roots, always. I, uh, when I'm counseling and I want to help someone, you have to get to the root. Because we complain about the fruits. The fruit is the pain. But if you don't deal with the root, the pain is always going to come back. If you have a, a bad tooth and you just deaden it, when, when anesthesia goes away, the pain's going to come back. You have to deal with the root of the matter. And so you have all of these, these fruits, but it's not the root. And at the core of, of this divisiveness is anger, bitterness, hatred, fear, the rejection of authority. At the core of it, it's just sin. And we're in a free fall in all of these areas, medically, financially, and also within the division of our country. I've never seen it like this. I'm in my 60s. I've never seen it like this. And so because of the rejection of authority, think with me. People reject authority. They reject the law. Now think with me. So they want to enact new laws. Well, if you want to reject the law, nobody's going to obey the law. Why do you want to have other laws? You don't want to honor those that are enforcing the law. You don't want to reject. You don't want to honor any law. So you want to put new laws in place. Well, why? Because you don't want to honor the law. And at the seed of everything, according to God's word, is there must be authority. Now, there are appeals to authority. There's a way that you can make changes in that. But when you reject the word of God, consequences come into your life. And so last week, all of this, uh, these things, these three things I mentioned, the coronavirus, the the financial aspect and all the division. It just, the confluence of all of this, just, I, I just kind of hit the wall. Now, I didn't have a, a weeping and wailing fit. And uh, I wasn't <clears throat> angry, but I was just tired. I was just, I was just emotionally weary. I was so burdened about it. And, uh, and I just began to pray and talk to God. I began to write some things down. And it, it's flowed over into the church. Even in the local church, people are having trouble. Uh, I, I don't think it's in this church. I honestly don't. I'm not just saying that to you. I, I don't. One of my, my pastor friends, I've talked to a lot of pastors. I've read a lot about this. Um, on their, their first service that they opened back up, they had been on video like we had for um, several months. The first service that they opened back up, a good man, a good man in his church came up and he said, Pastor, I, I'm not coming back because everybody is not wearing their mask. And my pastor friend said, Rick, I just didn't know what to say. My ushers aren't police. I just don't know. I just don't know what to say. This is a, a a letter written by a pastor. I have his name here. I'm not going to read read his name, but he sent this to his congregation. And uh, again, this is not this is not my heart. But there are pastors that feel this way, and I'm just going to read sections of it. Okay, listen to this. So, dear church, I love you. You are not a burden. Some of my favorite memories include times that I was with you. We are in a difficult time right now as a world, nation, and church. None of us have ever experienced anything like this. There is no manual that tells us best practices for a church during a pandemic. The most difficult aspect of it is that we have no idea how this will play out. If I can be vulnerable with you right now, 
I would like for you to know that this is the most difficult letter, I'm, I'm sorry, the most difficult time I've ever faced in all my years of ministry. The Lord has put me in the role of a shepherd, and I find that task not only humbling, but scary as I attempt to steer my flock in the way that the Lord would have me steer it. I'm used to hearing encouragement and also complaints as a pastor. However, the moment that I find myself in now, most of what I'm hearing is complaining. If we take precautions against this virus, I lack faith, according to some. If we move forward in faith, I'm being careless, according to others. For one person, I will get a phone call expressing their frustration with how we have decided to move forward. But a few minutes later, I would a call from someone else criticizing the speed in which we are moving. I get it. I want things to be normal again, just as much as you do. I did not enjoy talking to a camera as I sat alone in the church. I also do not want to see any of you get sick or die from this virus. Believe me, I'm trying to see this from every angle before making any decision to move forward. I have experienced burnout before, and now I feel that this foe is knocking at my door again. Burnout is where you pour out more of yourself than you replenish. It's akin to dehydration. Pastors do more than just preach to a congregation. We never stop thinking about our role and how to best minister to a group of people that we absolutely love. Friend, right now, I am feeling desperate for some spiritual water. If you love me, please be patient with me. If you trust me, please understand that any decision I make is in hopes that I am moving forward with God's will for His glory and for your good. No decision will please everyone, and no amount of pleading with you will keep you from having an opinion. But please understand that in our church there are many opinions, and I'm the one who gets to hear them all. Now listen to this paragraph. This is, to me, this is the core of it. The real tragedy will come not from people dying or having a transfer of this virus between us. Heaven is real, and we shouldn't fear the joy that we will have from going there. The real tragedy will be if we cannot pull ourselves together out of a love for the Lord and a love for each other. If this tension that is happening right now all around us creeps into our church and it breaks us apart, that will be the true tragedy. You may not agree with every decision. In fact, you won't. But if you could understand that your pastor is walking a tightrope with dangers on both sides and with no end in sight, maybe you would choose to give him some grace instead of your criticism. Friendly fire is coming at us from every side. And some of the friendly fire does not feel all that friendly right now. Thank you for considering these words not as a complaint and not as a decision. I'm sorry, I can't talk well. Eric, you left it up here. And not as a dissatisfaction. Rubber baby buggy gunkers. And not as a dissatisfaction of you. I truly love you. Please accept this plea for patience, prayers, and true companionship. I want to serve the Lord with joy. And right now, that joy is hidden behind a mountain of people's opinions and my own anxious prayers and exhaustion would love your pastor. Now, I read that. That's not, that does not reflect my heart. It really doesn't. But it does for a lot of pastors. I'm telling you. I'm, I'm reading things on Twitter and other places. I read this this past week from a friend of mine. Here's what he said. My friend wrote this. He said, I received a message from a pastor this morning requesting prayer for unity in his church. He wrote that a number of church members are insistent on everyone wearing a mask to church, while some refuse to wear it. The result is division. And then he put this, this is a pastor in Europe. Now, the, the pandemic is global, but so, so are these issues, uh, some of them greater than others, that we're having to deal with. Now, the Bible, and, and this brought great comfort to me. This is probably the dominant thought I walked away with, and this is not the message. I'm going to get there in a moment. 
But the Bible tells us, this, it calls us two, two names, or describes us by two characteristics. That we are pilgrims and we're strangers. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 13, These all died in faith. And the all there, before then, he talks about Abel, he talks about Sarah, he talks about Abraham and Noah. So these people, they died in faith, not having received the promises. God gave them a promise. But having seen them afar off. So they saw them with the eye of faith, but they didn't realize all of them yet. And were persuaded of them, and they embraced them. I like that. They knew they were so, and they they embraced them, they believed them. And they confess. Now I want you to look at this, I'm going to come back to this. And they confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Now, a pilgrim is someone that is on a journey towards home. Okay? I'm not home, but I'm headed home. Listen, this world is not our home. We're just passing through, as the song says. I'm headed home. But when you set your roots here, you get really disturbed about what's happening. I'm a pilgrim. And a stranger is someone that is living in a country that is foreign to them. People speak a foreign language. They have foreign customs. They're different. I am a stranger here. This world, I am a stranger to this world. They speak a different language. I'm not at home here because I'm a pilgrim. I'm going home. Now I want you to look at the verse there. The Bible says that God gave these people... A promise, they hadn't realized it all fully yet, but they embraced it. They knew it was true. They were persuaded of it. And watch this. They confessed it. They confessed that they were pilgrims and strangers. Now, my question for you is, have you confessed in your heart that you are a pilgrim? That this is not your home. Have you confessed that you're a stranger? Or... Your roots so deeply embedded here that the customs that you see that are passing away and the things that are happening, that that you're hurting so bad, it's not because of the promise of the future. And by the way, listen, heaven is real, but, but you grasp it by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. And if you're walking by sight and not by faith, you're going to be miserable. But if you're walking by faith and not by sight, listen, the rapture hasn't happened because it, it is an act of faith. It's going to happen. And when it happens, you, have, you embrace it by faith. You're persuaded of it. But I confess, Lord, I am a pilgrim. This is not my home. I'm passing through. And I'm a stranger here. And because of that, within the heart of every Christian is a distaste for the philosophy of the world. I'm hungry for heaven. Oh, listen, that doesn't mean I don't love people. I love people very much. But I love God and I love His ways more than what the world says success is. If I live by, by what the definition of the world's success is, I'm a failure. And if you, you do that, you're going to be chasing the dollar. You're going to be chasing popularity. You're going to be chasing power. And that will lead you to suicide, it will lead you to to the bottle, it will lead you to a pill, it will lead you to a lot of places. Because that's what the world does, Romans 12. It squeezes you into its mold. But when you live by faith because you're a pilgrim, because you're a stranger, you're, you're headed for a better city, for a better place. Notice Paul's, some of his last thoughts on earth, this occupied his mind. He wrote this, some of the last sentences that he wrote. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also. Now look at this, that love his appearing. Now, watch this. They don't love the rapture, they love Christ. It's not that they love... It's not that they're concerned with with disappearing from their problems. 
And I know there's great joy in that. I do. But their joy is in the appearing of Christ. And here's the idea, because we're strangers and we're pilgrims, we love Christ more than we love the world. That's the idea there. I love the appearance of Christ. It, it doesn't mean I love the doctrine of eschatology, which simply means the doctrine of last things. Or I want to study prophecy all the time. That's not what that means. It means that when I, I love the Lord Jesus and I want to see Him again, not that I'm, I know all the charts and the graphs of the last days. I may share some of those things with you. But it's all, it's all about Jesus. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and he gives a metaphor for your body here, and he, he talks about it like a house. Remember that old song that quartets used to sing? My grandfather taught me this song. He loved this song. This old house, and it talks about, man, it, it's, it's all messed up, and the shutters are messed up, and God's going to have to give me a new house one day. That's what he says here in 2 Corinthians 5, for we know that if our earthly house... That's this body. That's these eyes, these ears. For if we know that our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, that means it was gone. We died. We have a building of God. God's going to give us a new house. Some people think in heaven we'll be 30 years old. At the epitome, at the apex of our health, because Jesus We'll be like Jesus, and Jesus was about 30 years old when he passed away, perhaps 32, 33 to be exact. I don't know that that's true, but it sounds good, doesn't it? We have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. This old house is temporal. It's not going to last long. You get older, you pay a lot of money to the doctor. Hearing aids are expensive. You're... you're putting a lot of money out to to maintain your house, your earthly vessel. Now notice in verse 2, For in this, in this fact that we're having to deal with our old house, look at this, we groan. The word groan there means to sigh. It means to say a prayer without words. It means to grieve. Here's the idea. We groan. It means giving a sound that has no words. It's really a heart expression. It's muttering a sound without, there are no words. It's just, it is a groan. I'm hurting so bad, there's no word for it. I I want to go home so bad. Lord, I, I want to meet you. Lord, I'm tired of going to funerals. I told Paula the other day, a friend of ours passed away, one of my mom's best friends. And uh, we've been to so many funerals in the last month, a bunch. I've done a lot of funerals in the last month. And don't don't take this wrong when I say this, because I don't mind helping people. I, when I say this, I don't mean this. It's just this, this groaning. I said, Paula, I'm just, I'm just so tired of funerals. Hope you understand what I mean by that. It's not that I don't want to help people, but it's the groaning of standing by gravesides and seeing daddies and mamas weep and best friends carry coffins. And I'm groaning, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is which is from heaven. And you see, when you're a pilgrim. And when you're a stranger, there's a groaning. I want to ask you a question this morning. Do you have that groan? If you don't, maybe you just love the world. Maybe you groan more over you're not getting paid as much or you're not getting recognized at work. It's over power, popularity. It's over finances. It's over pleasure. But is your groaning over eternal things? It is over suffering, not maybe your own suffering. Not that that's wrong, but for others. God has given us a yearning. In fact, every single Christian has this yearning in their heart. That, Lord, I I want to go home. Not just to escape my problems. Yes, that's a part of it. But I want to go home. This is not my home. I'm a stranger here. 
Uh, you know, when you meet a Christian, sometimes Paula, she'll, she told me just yesterday, she met this lady. She said, I believe she was a Christian. Uh, there's something that attracts Christians to each other. It's like a magnet. And, and let that, that, that yearning in your heart to, to meet the Lord and to know the Lord, let that desire draw you to the heart of God. Listen, rather than be becoming frustrated at what's going on around us. And that's what helped me with this, this pilgrim and stranger idea that God gives us truth. It's a truth, not just an idea that God has given us in the Bible. That it's inevitable, but, but the heat is really up right now really up and it really helped me so god this is this is not home and you allow these things and these things you you prophesied them in the bible and so that my heart would would be more tender and lord because this is not my home it would yearn for heaven to be with you and that's that's why the rapture becomes more dear to us now, when I was a boy, I would hear teaching and preaching about the rapture, and it scared me. Anybody remember that? Did it scare you some? And you'd hear things, you'd say, man, what's going to happen? You know, when's it going to happen? And I, I was frightened about it. And then when I was a teenager, and I was saved, I knew where I was going. It was interesting to me. I wanted to know the sequence of it, what was going to happen and who the characters were in the, in the tribulation period and uh, the moment the rapture happened, what was going to happen. And we're going to talk about that uh, if we don't get into it today, uh, next week. But it was interesting to me, and that's not wrong. And then when I was a younger man, it compelled me. that I've got to do something about it. Jesus could come at any moment. So I must be busy about the master's business. I need to tell people about Jesus. I want to be ready, but I want to help others to be ready. But now that I'm, I'm older, the rapture is precious to me. My, my, my mom, uh, she probably the last uh, 10 years, maybe a little more than that, but at least the last 10 years of her life, she loved the doctrine of the rapture. It wasn't just a prophecy. It was a rapture. I mean, she told me often, she'd say, she would say something like this. She'd say, Rick, I'm not going to die. I'm going to go up in the rapture. You say, well, she was wrong. Well, she had faith to believe that she was going up. And she's hearing me say this now, maybe. But she did. She believed that. For a while, Tim's mom lived here. Tim Coley's mom lived with he and Kippy. And my mom would sit, sit with her, y'all remember, right back there on the same row. And uh, they would sit there together. And they would talk. I hope they weren't gossiping, but they'd sit back there. And uh, I'm just kidding. And uh, she'd look over, mom, mom would tell me this, she'd look over at mom and say, when is he going to preach on prophecy? He's talking about me. Mom said, I don't know. I talk to him about it all the time. He said, well, how, how do you know she said that? Because my mama would tell me. She would tell me during the week. said, now, you know, Miss Coley was asking me when you're going to preach on prophecy. I said, well, Mom, I'm going to. I said, do you know why I don't preach on it a lot? She said, well, why? I said, well, the best way to get prepared for the coming of the Lord is to teach people how to live right now so they, they'll be prepared to meet the Lord. Well, but, but, okay. I said, people that preach on the rapture a lot, it's kind of spectacular and people are interested in it. But then a lot of times they go right back to the way they're living. I said, I want to equip them how to live for Jesus right now and how to be prepared so when Jesus comes, they won't be ashamed and they'll have some rewards in heaven. And that's one of the reasons I don't. And it's in the Bible. I'm going to preach about it even now. One of the reasons is, is to stabilize you, to help you in this moment. And if you read First Thessalonians and some other places, you find out that's why God has given it to us. One reason that the, the doctrine of the rapture is, is kind of squashed 
is because if you believe it, if you profess in it, people will make fun of you. Especially in academic circles. They will tout you as being ignorant, as being silly, as being foolish. Oh, you believe in that rapture stuff. (laughs) And they'll make fun of you. Thousands of years ago, God predicted this. God said, now, if you believe in the rapture, people are going to make fun of you, so get ready for it. Notice in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, you may want to write some of these verses down to help you. In 2 Peter 3, and verse 3, the Bible says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last day scoffers. The idea of people that are mocking you. They're saying negative things about you. They're making fun of you. Now, I want to come back to this line. Walking after their own lusts. That's an important line. They're li- Heaven's not their home. All they have is this world. So, so they're just walking after their own selfish desires. And here's what they're saying. And saying, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, since they died, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. There's more in the passage there. He gives some illustrations about it. They said the same thing to Noah. He says in Sodom and Gomorrah, he goes on to give some illustrations in the passage. Where is the promise of his... You, you folks are always saying Jesus is coming. Oh, you've been saying that for a long time. He's not coming. Now, why do they do this? Well, verse 3 says they're scoffing because they're walking after their own lust. Do you know why that they, they cannot see the truth? Because they don't love truth. They don't love God. Watch this. They love their lust. They love their sin. They love their lifestyle. And as long as you love something else besides the truth, and you don't love God, you're never going to have ears to hear. You're never going to have eyes to see. And one day you're going to miss it. Now, here's, here's a passage I ask you to turn to in John chapter 14. John chapter 14 and verse 1. John 14, 1. Had you turned the Bible there, look at this. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Is your heart troubled this morning? I told Paula in recent days, I said, I don't think I've ever been more angry I mean, you look at me, you'd say, well, Rick doesn't seem like an angry person. I don't think I am. You know, the Bible commands us sometimes to be angry and sin not. But just, just stays, I had to be careful. The Bible here says, let not your heart be troubled. Don't, don't be angry, don't be feared. This is the night before Jesus is crucified. His disciples know something is up. They, they have sensed that something, is he leaving us? They don't know what's happening, but something's going on. And notice, notice the place of the troubles in the heart. It's in your mind. Now, don't be troubled. Don't be anxious. You believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, trust me. Trust in God. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. I'm going, I'm going home. To my home. One day I'm going to bring you there, and I'm preparing a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will, here's the promise, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, remember, you love the appearing of His coming. Where I am, there ye may be also. See, that's the comfort it's not your disappearance from your problems. And I understand there's an element of that. But what you're loving is you're seeing Him. I'm going where He is. I'm going to be with the Lord Jesus. He's the one I love. I remember hearing Dr. Robertson so often quote this passage. And he would say it over and over again. I will come again. I will come again. Jesus promised. And He did promise you. He promised. He is not a liar. He promised us He is going to come again. The last day Jesus physically was on earth. By the way, did you know that the Lord Jesus is in the room this morning? 
The Bible says in Matthew chapter 18 that where two or three are gathered in His name, He said, I am in the midst thereof. In the book of Revelation, when He talks about the churches there, He said, I am in the midst of the churches with the, with the candlesticks. Listen, that, that represents the churches there. The Lord Jesus, every time we meet, the Lord Jesus meets with us with His Spirit. But listen to me, the last time his feet physically were on the earth, he ascended up into heaven on the Mount of Galilee. I remember when I was there in 1998, and I stood there, maybe not in the precise spot, but in that, not far from it. And I thought about this event. I looked up in the sky. Let's read it, Acts chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. And when Jesus had spoken these things, while they beheld, the disciples beheld, Jesus was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, he began to ascend. Two men stood by them in white apparel. These were angels. They just appeared. They stood there. And these angels said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? Watch this. This same Jesus, he had a physical body. This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, now pay attention to this, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. This same Jesus is going to come again, shall so come. Well, if he, how did he leave then? He said, the way he left, he's going to come again. Well, he left suddenly. He's going to come again suddenly. He left without warning. He's going to come again without warning. He left physically and bodily. He's going to come again physically and bodily. He left in the clouds. When He comes, He's going to come in the clouds. He's coming again. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. I like that. Not in the future. The moment you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, you repent of your sins and uh, and you're born again. The Bible says that, that that moment, that very moment, you are a child of God. You don't have to say, well, I'm not sure about it. I'll find out one day when I stand before God. No, right now, the very moment you trust Christ, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know. Look at this. We know that when He shall appear, He shall appear. That we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. We shall be like Him. And we shall see Him. Do you believe this? Listen, if you don't believe it, you reject the Bible. Jesus is coming again. You're going to come to know Him, and He will know you. Back in uh, the late 90s, a series of books were written. Some of you have read them, maybe all of them. A series of books by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, and they're called the Left Behind series. The first book was called Left Behind. And then the other books have different titles. But it was about the rapture and the tribulation. And then when Jesus comes to establish his kingdom on the earth. And they took some characters and they illustrated them and so forth. They sold over, and and later on they came out with 16 books. They sold over 80 million copies. They were a phenomenon. This is unbelievable. In the New York Times... And in the, in, in the USA Today, bestsellers list, okay? Now, the New York Times does not count books that are sold in Christian bookstores. Did you know that on their bestseller list? You say, well, why? Well, you have a rough idea. Is there a little bias there? They do not count books in their bestsellers list that are sold in Christian bookstores. In spite of that, in spite of that, the first four books that LaHaye and Jenkins wrote, and this is like four and five years after, after the first one was written, the first four books were one, two, three, four on the bestsellers list of the New York Times and the USA Today for years. And this is, not, this is them not counting the books that were sold in Christian bookstores. I mean, it, it caught on fire. The Lord Jesus Christ is a, is a hopeful event, but it's a, it's a sober event. Because when Jesus comes, the clock is ticking 
for the end of the world. It is the beginning of the end. And all of a sudden, at that time, what we call the tribulation period, what the Bible calls a tribulation period, because tribulation happens in seven years. I'll go into detail about this later. And in those seven years, it, it is the earth has never known such calamity and trial and judgment ever. Boulders and, and um, ice flies from the sky over upon the earth, weighing over 100 pounds worldwide at various times. Other things I won't go into right now. And what kicks that off is the rapture. Now, the good news is those that are Christians won't be here. Now, I remember hearing this, and I did some research on it. It's true. Newspapers, and they're kind of going away, aren't they? But there's still some. Newspaper font, uh, what they do is a typical newspaper font is 10 or 12 point. So when they write a newspaper, and they use a certain kind of uh, type that they will use. So they'll use a 10-point or 12-point to read. And so the largest headline type that they will use when they want to make a bold type is 72-point. Now, those of you that, that type a lot and, and, and write articles and so forth, you can imagine how 72, how big that is and how large it looks. Over six columns in the paper, they'll put this 72-point type. It's called 6 hyphen 72 so when the guy wants this printed and put that way, he'll put 672, and they put it up there. The largest type that a paper can print is 118 point. It's almost never used. Now, I read the last time they used it, is what I read, was when World War II was ended. And do you know what they call it? You can check this if you want. They call it second coming type. Now listen to me. The preachers don't call it that. Lost people call it that. The newspaper people, secular people, the world's people call it second coming type. Because here's, here's why. They're saving that. They, they hardly ever use it. Rarely use it. Because they're saving it for the second coming. There's a lot of misinformation about the rapture. You have the rapture. I'll talk about it in just a moment. And then you have the second coming. Now, sometimes I call the rapture the second coming because it's kind of a... um, People understand that. But literally speaking... The second coming is different from the rapture. And really, another good name for the second coming is the revelation of Christ. That's when He reveals Himself to the entire world. Now, I've given to you this to you before, but it's been a long time. Let me give you some pronouns to show the distinction about Christ's relationship to the earth and to people. Okay? At Bethlehem, Jesus came to His own. He came to His own at Bethlehem. John 1, he, uh, he came to his own, his own received him not. So he came to his own. At the rapture, he comes for his own. And they will be raptured in a microsecond, in, the, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And uh, lost people won't see him. His feet will not touch the ground. At the second coming, he will come with his own. And all of those that are raptured from the Old Testament saints to the church, we will come with Him, we will return with Him, and His feet will touch the ground at the end of the seven-year tribulation. And then He will conquer the world and then set up His kingdom, His earthly kingdom, and we will rule and reign with Him. And that's a good way to learn His relationship with people in the earth. At Bethlehem, He came to His own. At the rapture, He comes for His own. And then at the second coming, he comes with his own. Now, let me make another differentiation here. At Bethlehem, it was public, but it was unnoticed. 
I mean, if you wanted to, you, you could see the Christ child, but very few people did. The wise men, um, a couple of dozen maybe that were there, maybe a dozen, a handful, and um, some shepherds. Of course, Mary, Joseph. That was a public event, but a very quiet event. The rapture is a private event, but it's unexpected. Or, or I should say, it's unknown. The second coming is a public event, but it's spectacular. It is a spectacular event. And buddy, the world will know about it when he comes in. Now, in closing, I'm not going to give you a lot of notes. This is just the introduction. Just read these verses with me, if you would. Notice in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, look at verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. This is a, the most in-depth teaching in all of the Bible on the rapture. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, or those which have gone, they've died ahead of you, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus Will God bring with him? You see, that's what I meant when at the rapture, he will come for his own. Will God bring with him? For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent, old English word, which means to go ahead of, them which are asleep. In other words, people that have died, they have a preference in the resurrection. Now, it's it's momentary. It's really fast because all of this happens just in a split second. But they they are resurrected before people that are living. It happens really quickly. Verse sixteen. Here's the order: For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Notice in verse 13, he says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not as others which have no hope. They had heard some false teaching that said, you'll never see your loved ones again. And, and Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is correcting their doctrine and saying, no, no, you will see them again. I don't want you to be ignorant about this. Because one day, Christ is coming, and those that have passed away, their bodies will be resurrected, they'll be caught up. And if you're alive, you will be caught up and snatched away. Now, in this passage, you will notice that the word rapture is not used. And if you talk to a skeptic, one of the things you will hear sometimes, they'll say, and they'll act like they're smarty pants. Most of the people, when I say most, I'm talking about 999 out of 1,000 or 999, 999 out of 100,000. They've never read the Bible and they don't know what they're talking about. They just read a chapter in the book. But they'll say something like this. Ah, you get on an airplane with somebody. Maybe you're reading a Christian book. You're reading the Bible. Are you a Christian? Oh, yes, I am. Well, I'm a skeptic. I'm an atheist. You are. Let me ask you a question, they say. Okay. Did you know that the rapture, word rapture is not used in the Bible? They want to catch you, catch you up. And a lot of people don't know that because they've heard about the rapture. And so they stand, sit there, oh, by the way, that's one reason you need to come to church to learn the Word of God. Not so you can learn trivia questions, but you can learn the Bible. And, and but, 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 well, yes, it is, because my pastor preached on the rapture. He wouldn't preach on something that's not in the Bible. Nope, not in the Bible. And it's not. So, well, preacher, why, why do we use that? Well, look at verse 17, if you would. Notice 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Then we which are alive and remain, now look at this, shall be caught up. Caught up. Now my Bible has a note on it. You may want to underline those two words. And uh, that's where we get 
the idea of the word rapture from. The word rapture comes from a Latin word, which sounds like rapture. It's repero, R-A-P-E-R-O. And uh, the word repero means to snatch away. And so that's where we get the word rapture. The word's caught up here in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, that we will be caught up. Here's what the word means in Greek. It means to pull by force or to carry away or to pluck. That's what it means. To pull away, to snatch, to seize, or to carry away. That's what it means. And so that's where the rapture, the idea of the rapture comes in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. We shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. So if any, anybody assails you and says, well, the word rapture is not in the Bible. No, it's not, but I can show you where we get it from. And if you really want to, and you can say it with humility... If you can't say it, don't say it. First Peter 3.15. Be ready to give an answer to every man with meekness and fear. In fact, I, I know where we got the word rapture from. Where? It comes from a Latin word, repero. And you start putting water on that fire over there, and it'll just tamp it down a little bit, and then they'll maybe, oh, okay, okay. Now, there's three questions that are answered in this passage. And I'm not going to answer them. I'm just going to give them to you. And we're going to be dismissed. But these are the questions that I'm going to answer. At least some of them. and Maybe all of them next week. Number one, who will be in the rapture? We're going to talk about that from this passage, 1 Thessalonians 4. Number two, what will happen at the rapture? What are, what are the events? What's going to happen? And then number three, what are the implications of the rapture? Those three questions are the things that we're going to look at next week. Who will be in the rapture? Everybody's not going to be in the rapture. What will happen at the rapture? And then what are the implications? All right. Let me exhort you. When your heart is troubled, claim His promise. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. Then he says, and where I go, he said, I am there. You're going to go be with me. Remember, remember church, you're a pilgrim and you're a stranger. This is not your home. This is not your home. We're headed home. Don't sink your roots in too deep. You'll get discouraged. We have a great Savior. We have a beautiful home. My mom and my dad are there. I go visit the cemetery sometimes where they're buried. But they're not there. I go there to honor them. That's all of them that I know. I told someone recently that my mom passed away. She passed away in surgery. And uh, the kind of surgery she had, she had open heart surgery. She didn't have a heart attack. But she had some other problems with her heart. And when you have open heart surgery, you have a lot of swelling. And uh, so, you know, we, Melly and Halston, I talked about it. And those of you that came by and saw my mom, she didn't look a lot like herself. And some, some may have said, well, why did, you, why did you have an open cast? She didn't look bad. I'll tell you why. Two reasons. They're really the same reason. Number one, I wanted my children and my grandchildren to think about eternity. I wanted them to think about eternity. And there's something about when you see the body of your loved one. And I wanted other people to think about eternity. That was the only reason. Now, there would be cases where I wouldn't have done that. But we felt like that it was proper enough where we could do that. And I believe she would have wanted us to because she cared about people going to heaven. And she loved her kids and her grandkids and her great-grandkids. She wasn't in that box. She's not in the ground. My daddy's not there. They're with Jesus. But I still go to those places to, to honor them and love them. They mean a lot to me. But I'll see them one day. What a day that will be. I want to teach you a song. We may sing it next week. We'll be dismissed with this. I know you've been here a while, but you're not coming back tonight. So I'm giving you a little bit of time here, okay? Years ago, I taught you this. Some of you may remember it. 
I sang it this week some to myself. Let me see if I can play it here. If you know what's saying, it, it won't be long. It won't be long. Soon we'll be leaving here. Soon we'll be leaving here. It won't be. We'll be going home. Let me get another key here, get higher. It won't be long. Soon we'll be leaving here. It won't be long. We'll be going home. One more time. I'm deaf and I can't hear you. It won't be long. Soon. Isn't that good, good truth? It, it won't be long. sing that while I'm preaching. That had nothing to do with the sermon. Alright? It has to do with the rapture. Okay, Steve Vermont, I'm looking at you. Alright, sing it this week. Good out of here. I love you.